0: You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds from Stokes Family Office.
1: Lanyap Podcast. This is Greg Stokes with my brother, Doug. Today is Thursday, June 22nd, a lot of things going on in the world today. Um, and a lot of historical references occurring specifically related to this um, Titan submarine. This, these individuals went down to get a first-person glimpse of this, the um, Titanic wreck in the North Atlantic and uh, haven't been heard from since and presumably have run out of oxygen um, 13,000 uh, feet below the surface. Um, I really had, personally had no idea that people were even doing this sort of tourism I'd have heard about. Um, B- Blue Origin flights, um, people going to, s- to space. And interestingly enough, I read, I've got a Wall Street Journal article here, but one of the individuals that's on the Titan boat um, went on the Blue Origin flight and went and flew out in space. But here's the, the uh, Wall Street Journal article, the booming business of trying to reach the ends of the Earth. Extreme adventurers send travelers to the ends of the Earth, the bottom of the sea, or even to space. The risks and costs that regularly total over $100,000, the business is booming. This week, a deep-sea trip to the view of the Titanic shipwreck went awry when the submersible carrying five people disappeared while en route. Um, so, Doug, what do you think about what's going on here? And uh, this is certainly something that I, I didn't even think that people, um, I didn't even know this was on people's radar going to, to see the Titanic.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the only reference I have to this is that uh, James Cameron went down to view it uh, before uh, filming the Titanic, I think just to get an understanding of the ship. And I remember reading about that a long time ago, but I, I really don't get it. I I think I understand wanting to go to space and like riding on blue origin or Virgin Galactic, but it looks like this submarine, first of all, these people barely fit in it. Number one. So you're uncomfortable going down you know, 13,000 feet. And then there's a, Small porthole at the at the front of the ship where you get to have a view of the Titanic, which is presumably lit up by a light from the vessel. So i I just don't understand uh, the desire to do that when you don't really even get a good look at it. Number one, and number two, the the dangers are clearly quite high because of the you know how far down you are, the the pressure levels, and then you know in hindsight the shoddiness of the um, you know, construction of this the submarine using like a consumer logitech it's like an uh, xbox controller a remote <laughs> control. yeah to control a submarine and the funny thing about that i saw logitech stock dropped by uh, no way let's see <laughs> yeah so uh, i saw this yesterday so uh, upon news of uh the vessel disappearing logitech which is an eight now an 8.8 billion dollar market which is market cap company which is also crazy uh, dropped from uh 56 dollars per share on tuesday to uh 54 dollars per share so like a five percent drop in the stock upon news of this so five percent of nine billion dollars like a what is that 450 million dollar drop in market cap because of this guy's uh use of a remote control but um yeah, I would say this seems like a stupid adventure. Uh, you don't even really get any sort of thrill out of it. You get a, a very tiny view of the Titanic through a small porthole, and then you have all the risks involved. Uh, I think you know, con- contrast that with going to space. I think uh, you know it's complete complete one eighty. And I think I, I don't know if I would personally do it, but I would consider the risk uh, you know of, going, of space flight. Uh, versus versus going into the deep sea. So,
1: also coincidentally, and this is also tragedy, but um, earlier this week, 700 migrants died in a boat that was capsized in the Mediterranean off the coast of Greece. This is a coast, the shipwreck of the of the Adria or the Adriana, It um, made me think of. And you're not really seeing that in the news. I saw it as a brief snippet, but obviously this this Titan thing has been all over. There's three articles about it on the the Wall Street Journal, for example, but it made me think of uh, this Stalin quote. It said, the death of one man is a tragedy. The death of a million is a statistic.
2: Yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I think in relation to World War II, but I think that that's right because there's not a whole, there's not a a personal connection there. Um, You're thinking about it from a a mass of people and, and, Without the, the considering the lives that are impacted, yeah. So this is the Wall Street Journal on the on that Logitech controller. It says what was running the Titanic submersible? It could be a forty nine ninety nine video game controller. Tech analysts say video game controllers are often used in other applications. And you look at this, and it's like a knockoff Xbox controller. Um, Jesus. Yeah. I mean, it is crazy. In, in terms of like, it seems like if you. We talk about investment due diligence and making sure that you're um, you know you could turn over every stone before making an investment decision. Uh, it seems like these people would do similar levels of diligence on a uh, basically a a do a death mission, a suicide mission, and it sounds like nobody really looked into it. They just watched a YouTube video or, a, or looked at a flyer and, and went for it. Yeah,
1: so I'm sure this is going to be the last time that there's any Titanic um, expeditions for a while. Um, and I, I mean, I don't see why, like you said, it doesn't make any sense. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but if you just look at things objectively, it sounds like a horrible idea. Um, and borrowing any sort of mer- miracle, these individuals are probably not going to see the light of day again. Um, so shifting gears here, and this is really, this, this whole Titanic thing made me think about history. Obviously, this is the world's most famous shipwreck. Um, and 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 there's also some historical data that came out related to what we look at on a regular basis uh, and I thought this was interesting we're going to go into some details that relates to history in the United States around the same a couple of decades after the Titanic the Titanic sunk i think in 1911 um, so
2: it's 110 110 years or so yeah oh by the way before we get there have you seen those pictures of a cruise modern cruise ship Next to the Titanic in terms of size. Right, they're,
1: they're like five or ten times bigger than the
2: Titanic, essentially. Yeah, it's like, yeah, it's so it's so funny thinking about the Titanic as this massive vessel carrying passengers in a first class manner, by the way, from uh, England to the United States. But uh, I think that the funny thing is just how small the Titanic is uh, in comparison to modern ships.
1: So um, shifting gears into the historical aspects of, um, of the, the markets and the housing markets is what I'm going to go into at first. I found this really interesting. This is the most expensive cities to buy a house um, in 1930, the, the, the top and the from top to bottom, uh, most expensive, least expensive, the, the most expensive city in the United States um, in uh, 1930 was Syracuse, New York. Followed by Cleveland, Binghamton, New York, which I'm not I'm not exactly sure where that is. Then it, then it goes on, and then the bottom three or bottom three or four are Dallas, Sacramento, Seattle, Portland, and Austin, Texas. Um, so times have changed quite a bit as it relates to over the last 120 years, 110 years in the U.S. housing market. Um, there's been a real obviously the ba- basically if you look at the to the bottom in the bottom three or four in that list that I just went through essentially would be considered to, it's, the list is almost flip flopped hundred uh, uh, percent.
2: This is really interesting. So Syracuse history of Syracuse, New York, this is historical population going back to 1850 it's de- by decade. Uh, and this is, that was in 1930. Is that what you you're referencing the most expensive. Yeah, right. Okay. So um, in 1930, Syracuse had a population of 209,000 people. Uh, t- the 2010 census had a population of 145,000 people. The population grew from uh, 28,000 uh, residents to 210,000 or so residents in 1930. Um, so just a complete boom uh, in the early 20th century. And, uh, and that was uh, largely driven by um, you know, the, the their car ma- manufacturers there. It's also headquarters to Carrier Corporation, which is like uh, air conditioning, things like that. And it and GE had its main uh, TV manufacturing plant. So uh, funny how sort of it, it was that that was part of the you know, sort of the northern part of the Rust Belt. But going down into Pennsylvania and all the steel and industrial might of the United States, and you know, the growth of the population there as a result and and then corresponding growth of home prices and then reverse that with sort of the bottom end of the list and you know the Austins of the world which were basically cow towns back then now that have turned into tech hubs um, so it's uh, it is pretty interesting it makes me think of New Orleans too that New Orleans in the early part of the early to mid part of the 20th century was a was a boom town um, and then and with oil and port and um, just a lot of commerce coming up and down the Mississippi River, and that's been basically outsourced to neighbors uh, you know, post 1950. So um, it's crazy how how much changes, and it's funny to think about you know, making decisions, buying a house in a certain area. A lot of this is just going to be driven by luck, and you know, whether or not your the price of your home appreciates. And that's honestly, I have ne- I've never really thought of. Uh, buying a home as an investment decision for for similar reasons because you can't really count on um, you know just continued growth in the value of residential real estate just demographics just change so quickly yeah plus if you consider the fact that you're having
1: all these outlays related to maintenance and property taxes and insurance etc it's really not that great of an investment unless you just so happen to be one of these, People that buys a place in, for pennies on the dollar in uh, Austin, Seattle, Portland in the '30s, um, but that's how a lot of people on the West Coast have gotten incredibly wealthy. They, their parents or grandparents or whatever bought a, a uh, apartment building and like next to the beach in San Diego, and all of a sudden the thing's worth a fortune um, by just by by sheer luck. And the same sort of things happen in, as in any sort of investment vehicle. Um, but you can see it's sort of self evident by looking at these sort of demographic charts over the over the last hundred years in the United States. And and really the United States in the 19 th- in nineteen thirty was obviously a sort of a, a really bad time in the history of the United States. The 1929, as we all know, in October of 1929, we had the the uh, it was it Black Tuesday or Black Monday? I don't remember this these getting get all the all the uh, these uh, horrible days in market history i um, sort of getting mixed in my head or whatever, but basically, the, the U.S. markets at one point in time were off like 90% during the Great Depression. Um, interestingly, um, it's from their bottoms to their lows, and and it, and it took like 20 years or so for the markets to basically get back to to square one, and and, and then we had the the boom from World War II um, uh, and th- thereafter and the baby boom, et cetera, that really sort of set the United States up to be this global superpower that we've really re-entrenched ourselves as. Um, at at that, after that point in time. But I found this, this is from an article by ben, that Ben Carlson prepared, which I, I highly recommend everybody to, to read. It's, it goes through the history of the markets. But in 1929, approximately just 1.5 million people owned stocks in 1929 out of 120 million people. So, it's just a little more than 1% of the population. Um, at that point in time, the the unemployment in the United States was 25%. Um, so obviously the Great Depression had a huge impact on the overall economy, but only one percent of the population owned stocks. In 1983, that jumped to 19 percent. and by 2000, sixty percent of the United States owned stocks. and he goes Carlson goes through the, the reasons behind that. like people back in the 80s, a lot of them had pensions, and then the 401k came um, as in, into legislation and, and that people basically were inv- in charge of investing for their own retirements. And that's why, why a lot of uh, institutions like ours came into existence as well, too, because the people wanted to outsource that responsibility to professionals. Um, but it's really interesting to see the evolution in the stock markets over that period of time in that basically nobody owns stocks or very few individuals own stocks. And, and that in the, uh, around the same time that we were referring to as in terms of the housing market to now nearly ubiquitous ownership of the stocks in the United States by people.
2: Yeah. And I think to add to that, uh, public markets back then were so concentrated in just a few different industries, specifically railroads and manufacturing were such large components of the markets. And so when you have a 90% or 80, 80 plus percent drawdown in the stock market, um, you know people get fearful on a go-forward basis that we'll have a repeat of 1929 in that Great Depression period in equities and I think one of the things to think about as you sort of you know, benchmark the probability or handicap the probability of that happening again is uh, just the concentration in markets back then were, were so industrial heavy um, and so tied to really economic growth and now it's so diversified away from although correlated but diversified away from the economy that you have you know, industries like tech or staples or um, you know industrial healthcare, whatever that make up the, the U.S. stock market that everyone's investing in. Um, you just have it's just hard for me to imagine a drawdown of eighty plus percent when you have that that level of diversification. Uh, simply because these asset classes don't they move around for different reasons. You have people that are going to continue to need healthcare because you've got an aging boomer population or you have people that are, you know, young people that are, have kids that are going to continue to need to buy, you know, Pampers or Huggies diapers from Procter & Gamble simply because they have children. And so, you know, despite moves in the economy and even moves in the markets, these, there are certain areas that will withstand sort of economic contraction
1: compared to, uh, you know, 100 years ago. Right, and um, those are those are economic signs of the of the past. And I always wonder this about. I'm sure a lot of things that we're doing today, in our day to day lives, people are going to look back at 100 years from now or 80 years from now and say, "Man, these people were crazy that they they were operating in that fashion." And that's something that that I thought of when I um, I saw this advertisement. This is, and I'm reading this verbatim. More doctors smoke camels than any other cigarette. Doctors in every branch of medicine were asked, What cigarette do you smoke? The brand named most was Camel. So, this is from 1950. Um, we're jumping a couple decades ahead. Um, but it's amazing to me that obviously, this is the evolution of this, this whole process is that, and is now that very significantly less Americans smoke cigarettes, um, but and obviously know that they're horrible for you. Um, but I, I, I always wonder myself, what's the what is what are we doing today that's going to be looked at in a similar fashion um, in terms of sort of like a, a uh, really a sort of uh, like sort of crazy like I can't believe they were doing that back then and that's this is one of those things of that era for sure and there's several of them obviously
2: yeah there's going to be um, I think it's, I think one of them is probably going to be you know, the type of food that we eat and um, and how just obese our po- our general population has become because of um the introduction of you know whether it's fast food or or you know different types of um, you know, carbohydrates and and fats into our diet that are are probably horrible for us and causing you know high levels of diabetes i guess the con- the the contrast to that is that pharma companies are coming out with like shots now that are weight loss shots and uh, diabetes preventive shots. So um, there's maybe that's one thing that reverses that trend. But, um, but or yeah. they
1: may ask, like, why are you going to on a uh, minivan-sized thing with a porthole to go see the Titanic?
2: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Although there'll be equally as idiotic things that they're doing in the future as as we're doing now.
1: Right. Yeah. So um, it's shifting gears, and we're so we we went through a little histor- historical uh, digression from the you know our normal market chatter. Related to this old Titanic thing, Um, there's a lot that's been happening in the markets. Well, too, year to date, the markets are up um, quite substantially, and it's been being driven primarily by seven big stocks. Let's see if I can name them off the top of my head: Microsoft, Tesla, Facebook, Google, Apple, Nvidia, and what else? I'm missing one out of that seven. Amazon. So, uh, and so they they account for like 70 or 80 percent of the market of the market's growth year to date. Um, so it's been a really interesting period of time, and that's really unprecedented in the history of the markets. The interesting thing about the markets, uh, so yeah, so uh, this is from Charlie Ballello. The number of stocks accounting for the SP's um gained by year in 2017 it was 203. In 2019, it was 328 or 65%, and then we just talked about the fact that 7% or 1% of this of the stock market is is accounting for. Um, the the normal this this bull market that we're in right now. so really interesting times and the interesting thing about about the markets and in life is that unprecedented things happen all the time. and this is one of those that we're having this sort of bull market that's being um, carried by these these big dogs. Um, so that's I found that interesting. Um, there's also some things going on in the in the inflationary markets that are promising and some some things that are not so promising. Um, the markets this week have been sort of, Flat because they opened up uh, opened up high. Mon- Monday was a market holiday for Juneteenth. Markets opened up fl- uh, a little bit off their off the weekend, uh, and then eventually came down because the Fed the Fed basically had a morato- moratorium when they couldn't speak all the Fed chair, chair people, um, and then they started saying that they're probably going to raise again. And so the markets have been off, have traded off as a result of that, but still still pretty near um, their mo- their most recent highs. We're seeing some promising things in the um, inflationary side of the equation, which has really been driving the market lately. Um, this is from Core Logic that U.S. single-family rent growth continues its year-long descent into April, and uh, h- housing is one of the, is the biggest um, component of CPI. So if that con- that trend continues, then um, hopefully that the gets the inflation gets to a comfortable level level for the Fed, and they stop raising or and or they cut. Um, but as of this week, this, the, the Fed's basically bang, banging their drum that they're going to raise a couple more times, and that's what's been um, bringing the market's volatility this week, and and the reason why the market's trading off its highs a little bit.
2: Yeah, I think I find it really interesting that the the uh, treasury market itself, so like the the buying and selling of T bills in the general marketplace. Uh, anticipates the federal reserve to start cutting rates by the end of this year. And I, uh, just everything that you're reading from the federal reserve, specifically from you know, comments from Powell, seems like that that would be a complete surprise Yet the market thinks it's actually a probability that it's going to happen. Um, so we'll see, I think that, that that'll be a dynamic at play later on this year. Uh, I think we we've been on this since the beginning of this year that, um, that inflation should continue to decline and, and if it does then maybe the market is right again that the Fed will be you know, stabilizing and cutting by the end of this year um, in terms of you know, this market itself one of the scary things that uh, commentators have just noted that, you, that specifically the Alello quote that 1% of the market is driving you know 80 plus percent of the returns there are some other positives out there uh, this is a, a a thread that you had sent me from Ryan Dietrich, who um, is the chief market strategist for Carson Group. He had a really great chart in in here uh, that we need to send out that uh, goes through months without a 52-week high in the market. So uh, the high in the market for this prior cycle was January of 2022, and we still haven't reached those highs. Uh, so it's been 17.1 months since, uh, the last market high. And he goes through other periods in which we're still below highs, uh, going back to 1954, sort of your, your average there was in the you know, mid teen, mid to high teens up to sort of, uh, 40 months in 2003. We had a big you know three year bear market in, uh, 2001, and 2003, but then he goes through, okay, after you've, uh, gone without reaching a 52-week high, what is your one, three, six, and 12-month return on a go-forward basis uh, for periods greater than one year since a 52-week high? So one month, the average return is 1.3%. Three months, 4.8%. Six months, 9.1%. 12 months, 17.4% positive on average across all of that data set. And really what that says is if you're looking sp- specifically at history and markets, even though we've had a great run-up uh, from January of this year to June of this year, and it's only driven by seven stocks, maybe the the other 493 stocks in the S&P 500 catch up over the next 12 months. Uh, and if history is any guide, uh, there there is a bullish setup from here on out. So that would be that's the other side of the equation. People say that. Uh, because the market's only being carried by seven companies, that those seven companies are bound to come back down to earth and the market will decline as as a result. What Dietrich's saying here is maybe the opposite's true. Maybe the 493 stocks just play catch up over the next 12 months and and history suggests that uh, that's a likely outcome.
1: Yeah, I hope he's right. (laughs) Yeah,
2: Yeah, 2022 was a, a rough year. I mean, we talked about unprecedented events. I mean, a period in which we had uh double digit losses in the in the bond market and and one of the worst returns if not the worst return on record for a 6040 portfolio uh, i'd like to like be nice to have that in the rear view here and move on to bigger and better things amen so um
1: this so we're talking on june 22nd we're approaching the next the next next major holiday is uh 4th of july i saw a couple of things that i that made me feel very patriotic Um, And and I'm going to reference them right now. And this is also related to history as well, too, which is just a little bit more recent. But this is from the Financial Times. In 2008, the EU and the US economies were roughly the same size. But since the global financial crisis, their economic fortunes have dramatically diverged. As Jeremy Shapiro and Jana Pulgerian of the European Council on Foreign Relations put, in 2008, the EU's economy was somewhat larger than America's. 16.2 16.2 trillion versus 14.7 trillion. By 2022, the U.S. economy has grown had grown to 25 trillion, whereas the EU and UK together only reached 19.8 trillion. So U.S. goes from 14 to 25. The EU goes from 16 to 19 over the last um, 15 or so years. It's really crazy. Um, the other thing is, and uh, if this is from the world of statistics. The number of unicorn startups with worth over one billion dollars, USA is six hundred and fifty-one of these startups worth over a billion dollars. The next on the list is China at one seventy-two, followed by the EU at one hundred, India at seventy, UK at forty-nine, and then it goes, drops off precipitously from there. Um, and there's really only like twenty countries that are even in contention here. So really, really an amazing uh, transformation from really the Great Depression um where we were we we had 25% unemployment and and to the point of where we were were basically almost 25 or 30% bigger than the EU and the UK combined on an economic output basis and then also if you look at this the sort of innovation and ingenuity um the United States um, is really just trancing any sort of other if you look at all, if you combine all these countries i'm sure we're, that the United States create the, creates more unicorns worth over a billion dollars than any other of the remaining countries combined, which is crazy to think about. Yeah, and
2: I think um, as we think about America going forward, I think it's hard to bet against sort of that American engine with that sort of backbone with all of these startups coming in that are founded in America with American teams and American backers. uh, Sort of that next wave of innovation, whether it's artificial intelligence or or anything else um you know being founded in america and and just trying to take a bet against uh the united states on a go-forward basis economic wise it's it's seemingly a a bad bet so it doesn't mean that the best returns are going to come from the united states i mean there are various factors there but in terms of just um, desire to be here from foreigners perspective and immigration from the most talented people in the world to having the best companies here with uh you know, the, the, the ability to create massive wealth for, for people you know, nationally and internationally. I think um, America's will still be number one there for, for years to come, hopefully decades.
1: Yeah, I, I share that same hope, but, but it will likely, likely look a lot different than it has today in the decades to come. If, if history is any guide, we're, we're looking at, the, the, we talked about the top cities in the United States and from a price standpoint. For residents, and and that was we talked about all the Rust Belt uh, cities being in the top two or three, and and then all these sort of frontier and city or cow town cities and being at the bottom, and then we talked about the the people smoking cigarettes and that being a healthy choice in the fifties, and so things things will change, and hopefully we. Um, we continue to be the sort of dominant force that we've become over the last 100 years and really over the last 20 or 30 years in our lifetimes. Um, I, Like I said, I'll continue to bet on America, and I agree with you, what you're saying. I'll bet on America as well, too. Um, it should look a lot different, and it will look a lot different, though, if there's any guide. Um, with, without further ado, I wanted to, sh- wanted to shut this particular episode down. Uh, thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this, and we'll be back next week And uh, in anticipation of 4th of July. Uh, We'll be, we'll be with you and we'll, we look forward to, to spending time with you then. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com.